Good day, all. Welcome to a new episode of Learning Bible Truth with Dr. Kamala D. I am your host and teacher, Dr. Kamala D., here to teach you Bible truth, help you grow in faith, and learn how to walk in God's amazing grace. Now, I want you to remember to pray and ask God for understanding. Put your learning hats on, get your Bibles, invite family and friends, take notes, and let's learn Bible truth. Good morning, everyone. I want to thank God for another day and another opportunity to share with you his living word. I hope you and yours are doing well during this trying time. But I want to encourage you today to keep the faith. It doesn't matter what you see. It doesn't matter what you hear. Your faith should never waver. Stick with God, and the only way to know him is through his word. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. To God be all the glory. Now, today's message is very important. I want to talk to you about eyewitnesses to the risen Christ. This is a very important message. And my hopes in sharing this particular message is that the non-believers understand that there is no other way to get to God outside of Christ. So this is why the last three messages I have been sharing is all about Jesus. Because without Christ, you cannot get to the other side. When your life ends here, you will not see Jesus. No, you will not go to paradise. You will not go to heaven. The only way to get to God, the only way to get to heaven is through the Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Now, with that said, I want to get this truth on the road, but just laying down a a few ground rules for the the new listeners. I will be sharing a lot of scripture throughout this message and a lot of scriptures I will be quoting. Now, the scriptures that I will not be quoting, I want to make sure you have a pen and paper and also your Bibles so that you can write down these scriptures and study later. However, I will not give these scriptures without sharing a commentary. I will talk about these scriptures, of course. And for the scriptures that I will be quoting, for the sake of time, When I mention a scripture and I'm going to read it, I'm not going to wait for you. You have the ability to pause the podcast. And once you find the scripture, you can resume. And for those of you who have requested that I slow down just a little bit, guess what? Anything for you, my saints, anything for you, because I want to make sure you get this. But I naturally talk fast. You know, I do a lot of presentations and uh, I am so used to talking fast. But guess what? For you, I will slow down. Okay. so with that said, let's get this truth on the road. Now, for my opening scripture, I'm going to be using the New Living Translation. And for those of you who inquired about why I switched from the New King James to the New Living, I want to tell you I haven't switched. It's just that these particular messages for the past 
two, maybe three weeks that I have been sharing, I believe the New Living Translation best explains it. Rather than me constantly sharing uh, definitions about certain words, the New Living Translation will explain it in, in, in more detail to where you can get a better understanding. But if I choose to use the New King James Version during this message, I will. I will. So I want you to go to Acts chapter 2. And I'm going to be reading verses 32 through 36. And this is from the New Living Translation. So if you see a difference in the wording, that's the reason. But I guarantee you, we will end up in the same place. Okay. And I am reading. God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are all witnesses of this. So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. Now, throughout history and right up to this present day, we often convict people, sometimes sentence them to death based solely on eyewitness testimony. Now, of course, the more credible the witness, the more weight his testimony carries. So if you can remember, I did a, an episode about two weeks ago regarding who did Jesus say he was. But now we are going to talk about who did others say Jesus was. Who did the eyewitnesses to the risen Christ say he was? Now, in my pursuit of the truth, this is a question I examined with great interest. After all, firsthand testimony will either verify or contradict the claims of Jesus and form a picture of his true identity. In fact, Jesus himself said, if I testify on behalf of myself, my words mean nothing. You can find that in John chapter five, verse 31. Now, Jesus then identified two witnesses, God, the father and John the Baptist as qualified to speak on his behalf. So who did they say he was? God, the father testified that Jesus was the Messiah through his teachings, his miracles, his fulfillment of old of the Old Testament Messianic prophecies. And y'all know I did an episode or teaching on that as well. And his resurrection, that is the key, his resurrection. Also after John baptized Jesus in the Jordan River, a voice from heaven said, you are my dearly beloved son, bringing me great joy. Or today I am well pleased depending on what, which version of the Bible you have. I quoted that from the New Living. That's in Mark chapter 1, verse 11. Now, John the Baptist also testified that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God. Why is this important? Because the people of Israel, including many of the religious leaders, regarded John as a prophet. Read Matthew chapter 11, verse 9. Remember, the leading priest and religious officials even approached John and asked him if he was the Messiah. That's how highly regarded John was. 
Read John chapter one, verses 19 through verses 28. So who did John say Jesus was? John was an eyewitness. John called Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Read John chapter 1 verse 29. He also said when God sent him to baptize with water, he told him the Holy Spirit would descend like a dove from heaven and rest upon the one who would baptize with the Holy Spirit. Now John then said, I saw this happen to Jesus. And I testify that he is the chosen one of God. John chapter one, verses 32 through 34. But John the Baptist and God the father corroborate Jesus's story. But what did his contemporaries say? Was Jesus regarded as the Messiah by those who knew him best? Let's investigate this. That is what this message is all about. Now I want you to remember when I first read the Bible, I wasn't quite sure if it was truly the word of God. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. Christians certainly say it was, but where was the evidence? Then I encountered the hundreds of fulfilled prophecies in the Bible. And those prophecies convinced me that the Bible really was the word of God. Now I know what you're probably thinking. Now, of course, the, the apostles claimed Jesus was the Messiah. They were his devoted followers for years, and they fanatically embraced all his teachings. What else would they say? Hmm? That they wasted a good part of their lives following a false prophet? Now, now like you, I initially embraced this same line of thinking. After all, history, history books, are filled with stories of false prophets and messiahs with devoted followers convinced beyond all doubt that their guy was God's messiah or God's messenger. And many of these people were so convinced they certain, so look, so, so certain, they were so certain that they died for those beliefs. Now you can probably think of quite a few modern day examples of cult leaders who actually convinced their followers to commit suicide, but you will never find a scripture where Jesus did that. But there's something that separates Jesus from all history's cult leaders. Now something even beyond the fulfilled Old Testament prophecies. Now what is this great difference? The resurrection. The apostles personally witnessed the, the crucifixion of Jesus. They watched him die and they mourned his death. Then in a matter of days, they started zealously and publicly preaching that Jesus rose from the dead. But why? That's the question. Why did they start saying this? Now, before you answer, ask yourself another question. Who did the apostles think Jesus was? We tend to make the mistake of projecting our own views on these men, but the perception of Jesus among modern Christians is far different from, from that of the closest followers of Jesus prior to his crucifixion and resurrection. Now in first century Israel, Messianic fever was rampant. Remember the scriptures depicted or, or predicted 
the Messiah would appear sometime shortly after AD 27. So the Jewish people were actively anticipating and awaiting the arrival of the Messiah. And they did not expect the Messiah they were waiting for to be crucified. No, not at all. They didn't understand that sin had to be dealt with. Okay. <laughs> they had a much different idea. The Messiah would come as a great conqueror and king, throwing off the oppressive yoke of Rome and liberating the nation. The idea of a suffering Messiah sacrificed to cleanse the world of sin was a totally foreign concept to the Jewish people. This is why the apostles repeatedly refused to listen to Jesus when he told them what would happen to him. Read Matthew chapter 16 verses 21 through 23. The apostles had devoted their lives to the idea that Jesus was not only the Messiah, but also this, this, that the Messiah would be a great political leader who would rule the nation of Israel and the entire world. And one day he will, <laughs> just not yet. It just wasn't at that moment. So you can imagine how crushed they were when they saw Jesus crucified. Their Messiah was dead. Now, how could this be? After all, the scripture said the Messiah would live forever. At that time, the only reasonable conclusion they could draw was they must have been mistaken in thinking Jesus was the Messiah. All because of misunderstanding the Messianic scriptures. Now, with the death of Jesus came the depressing realization that everything they had devoted their lives to for three entire years had been a lie. They even refused to believe Mary Magdalene when she told them about the empty tomb. <clears throat> Excuse me, guys. They did not e expect Jesus to rise from the dead. In fact, they were so sure of his death, they grieved and wept. I want you to read Mark chapter 16, verse 10. Now, so what led to such a dramatic change in a short period of time? What? What transformed the apostles from weeping followers of a dead prophet to confident preachers in the rise of a resurrected Messiah? Only two possibilities exist. Either they saw the resurrected Jesus or they hatched a, a coordinated conspiracy to lie and say they did. And if you really think about it, you'll realize that the latter possibility isn't realistic at all. Now, it may be perfectly reasonable to expect that the apostles might lie about the resurrection. After all, as we've already noted, history shows us that a number of cult leaders and their followers have lied for various reasons. Fame, money, power, and inflated sense of self-importance. A deluded belief that a lie is a reality. But when I examined them, I found that not one of these reasons applied to the disciples. Now, I don't want to take my word. I don't want you to take my word for it. I, I, I don't blame you. So let's take a look at the possibilities. Hmm. The Bible is our resource. Okay. 
Now, today, I wouldn't consider it a stretch at all for a follower of a dead person to claim their spiritual leader rose from the dead. Because in today's world of religious tolerance, such a person could easily build the support of a small devoted group of followers more than willing to shower that person with adulation, uh, money, you know, and power. So the incentive ex uh, structure exists for such a thing to take place. I want you to think about that. And for those of you who wanted me to slow down, I'm struggling to do that because I am used to talking fast. Okay. So I'm trying to keep it slow <laughs> and it is a struggle. But like I said, anything for you, my sisters and brothers. Now, in fact, our modern society encourages it. And, and we can all cite examples of, of charlatans. Okay. If you will, both past and present who have taken advantage of the easily misled. But again, we shouldn't make the mistake of assuming the apostles faced a world remotely similar to our present day uh, reality and environment. Their world was quite different. Preaching the resurrection of Jesus did not translate into fame, money, and power. Instead, it led to nothing but condemnation, persecution, and martyrdom. OK, not like today. We have false teachers uh, in the pulpit in, in the body of Christ, and they are preaching for fame and money and power. OK, but the apostles didn't achieve fame and recognition in their day, only infamy and disdain. Now, they were banished from the synagogue and Jewish society in general. They were hunted and persecuted for their beliefs. They, they, they endured hunger, beatings, stoning, imprisonment, and exposure to the elements. Fame certainly didn't offer any incentive to, to ensure such misery. Would you tell a lie over and over again if it resulted in such treatment? Would you? Of course you wouldn't. I wouldn't either. So what about wealth? Did the apostles reap great wealth by spreading the gospel of Jesus? No, they did not. Most of them lived lives of utter poverty. Now, some of them were, were rich, but their riches didn't have them, honey. They had the riches and they shared it with the poor. Now, some of them were totally re re reliant on odd jobs or the charity of strangers for their day-to-day -day livelihood. Now, would you tell a lie over and over again if it resulted in nothing but a life of poverty? Of course you wouldn't. How about power? Uh, did, did the apostles rise to great positions of power as a result of preaching the gospel? No, they did not. Far from it. Instead, society ostracized them. While Christians, a small minority of people at the time, held them in high regard, this high regard didn't translate into wealth or fame or power. And even if it had, they probably wouldn't have accepted it anyway. Why? Because each one of the apostles lived a life of humility, constantly denigrating himself while elevating Jesus. We don't see that today. We see people elevating themselves. 
That's another teaching. But Jesus warned us about this. Oh, yes. Such are false apostles, honey. So the pursuit of power certainly wasn't an, an incentive to tell a lie over and over again. So if the apostles didn't if the apostles didn't receive fame, money or power, what did they receive as a result of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ through what was then the known world? Here's what they received. Relentless persecution and death. In fact, every apostle except John died a horrible and, and torturous death. Here's what happened to each of them. I know you have never been told this before, but I'm going to share it with you because it relates to this topic. Simon Peter was crucified upside down. Andrew was crucified. James was beheaded. John died in natural death while in, in exile in the Isle of Pot in the Isle of Potmus. Okay. Philip was crucified. Bartholomew Nathaniel was crucified. Thomas was speared. Matthew was speared. James, the son of Alphaeus, he was stoned to death. And Thaddeus was stoned to death. Simon the Zillot was crucified. Okay. Ten of the 11 remaining disciples of Jesus were executed for their testimony that he was the Messiah. Not one of the apostles went out killing anyone. Even if they didn't believe, they just went to the next person. They never strapped on a bomb to blow themselves up. Okay, for the sake of the Messiah. They didn't do any of that because they walked and preached in love. And love doesn't involve blowing people up or hurting anyone, physically or mentally. You tell them about the gospel and then you walk off. If they don't want to accept it, so be it. Go to the next person. Somebody with ears to hear, we'll listen to you. Now, he was the Messiah, okay? That he was crucified, he died, and I'm talking about Jesus. He died and rose on the third day. Would you walk from town to town telling other people what you know is an outright lie if all it got you was a lifetime of condemnation, persecution, topped off with a torturous death. Me either. I know you wouldn't, me either. But some people would, uh, would like us to believe that's exactly what the apostles did. Do you know that some of these false teachers from these other cults and other religions, they want us to believe that the apostles was lying about the resurrection. Y'all have not, no idea what's going on out there in, in ministry with leaders trying to hold a decent conversation about the Bible the scriptures and Jesus. Some people think the, the, the apostles was lying, but it wasn't just the apostles that saw the risen Jesus, but I'm not one of them. I'm here to tell you, I am not one of them. I find another scenario much more likely. In fact, it's a rather simple explanation. Now, are you ready for it? Okay, here it is. Maybe they were telling the truth. That's why they suffered all of that. Because they were telling the truth. Now, maybe the reason they, uh, you know, maybe the reason they preached the gospel, despite the terrible consequences, is because they actually saw, touched and talked to the resurrected Jesus. Now, if the apostles didn't receive fame, money or power, maybe they had another motive. After all, I, I did mention that Christians, even though they were a small minority at the time held the apostles in high regard. 
So maybe the apostles were motivated by the inflated sense of self-importance they received from preaching the gospel and having been personal companions of Jesus. This certainly sounds reasonable at first, but when you start to examine the evidence, it just doesn't make sense. Because if the apostles wanted to focus on themselves and their own greatness as, as firsthand witnesses of the, of the risen Christ, then they certainly did a poor job of it. They, they constantly talked about their own shortcomings and they retold and perpetuated stories about themselves that were at the very least unflattering. For instance, all the apostles scattered like cowards when Jesus was arrested. I want you to read Mark chapter 14, verse 50. Peter, who said he would die for Jesus, then denied him three times in his hour of need less than a day later. Luke chapter 22, 54, 62. If the gospel of Jesus is a lie hatched by the apostles, wouldn't they push a story and write letters that portrayed themselves as loyal, devoted, and, and courageous servants? Now, I would think so, but they did not. They didn't. Instead, they openly admitted to their faults and failures, almost to the point of boasting about them. Who would do such a thing unless it was the truth? When all the other apostles uh, told Thomas they had seen the resurrected Christ, what was his response? Did he say, that's great, I believe you? Far from it. Thomas didn't believe them at all. Instead, he said, unless I put my fingers in the holes in his hands and feet and put my hand in the hole in his side, I won't believe. Read John chapter 20, verse 25. A short time later, Jesus appeared to Thomas and invited him to see the scars and touch the hole in his side. Now think about it. If the story of the resurrection is nothing more than a conspiracy hatched by the apostles, would Thomas agree to this uh, account, which paints him in an unfavorable light? Now, would he agree to single himself out as the only one who didn't believe? Now, human nature tells us he would not. The only logical explanation is that his story is the truth. And who was the first person to see the resurrected Jesus? Was it Peter? Was it John? No, it wasn't. It was Mary Magdalene. And she immediately went and told the apostles that she had seen Jesus. Read Mark chapter 16, verse 9 and 11. I'm sorry, verses 9 through 11. I don't want you to miss anything. When I say 9 and 11, I kind of mean that number through that last number that I mentioned, like, Mark chapter 16, verse 9 through 11. Okay. Now, did they believe her? Did the apostles believe her? No, they didn't. They, th this is a story that once again presents the, the apostles as men of little belief, you know, doubting Mary's account of the resurrection, even though Jesus himself told them he would rise again after three days. Now, why invent a story that puts you in such a negative light? And what about the first witnesses at, at the empty tomb? Who were they? They were three women, Mary Magdalene, uh, Mary, mother of James, and Selaon. Uh, her name was Salome. 
Now, for those of you who don't know who Salone is, she was the daughter of Herodias, who uh, she danced be, uh, before her stepfather, Herod, and she was given a choice of, of reward for help and dance. And she, her mother, asked her to have to request that John the Baptist's head be brought to her on a platter. OK, that's what she, that's who she is. Salome. She was with the three. She was one of the three women. I want you to read Mark chapter 16, verses one through four. Now, if the apostles had conspired to lie, would they co concoct a story that placed three women at the empty tomb before themselves? Now, remember, at this point in time, society considered women second class citizens. Now, to perpetuate a story where three women saw the glory of the empty tomb first and relayed their story to a bunch of men who didn't believe them, once again portrays the apostles in a negative light among audience of their time. Now, such a story wouldn't generate the respect of peers, public adoration, or an inflated sense of self-importance. So why tell it again? The only reasonable explanation is they told the truth. Another line of thinking that seems to make sense at first goes sometimes like this. Okay, so maybe the apostles didn't have a self-serving motive for preaching the gospel. Maybe they were completely sincere, but deluded. Maybe they truly believed Jesus was the Messiah and they were just wrong. Happens all the time, right? I'll agree that some people can spend an entire lifetime believing a lie is the truth. After all, people believing that uh, a God named Allah exists and believe that some man named who I feel suffer from mental illness uh, was his messenger. And that's been going on for a lifetime. But what if you know something is untrue? Would you go to your death insisting it's the truth? Probably not. So why is it believable to think that 11 different people would agree to do just that? It's not. And for me, that forms the foundation for one of the most powerful arguments in favor of Jesus and his resurrection. What is this powerful argument? It's this. The apostles witnessed the crucifixion of Jesus firsthand. And they saw him die. Unlike many religious zealots who simply believed in something or hoped in something without cause, the apostles knew what happened to Jesus. They saw him hanging on the cross. They saw his side pierced. They saw him dead. Certainly history is, is littered with the bodies of, of those who willingly chose death rather than compromise their beliefs. But those people acted on blind faith. They were never presented with decisive evidence proving their beliefs were wrong. For the apostles, this wasn't the case. They dedicated their lives to the belief Jesus was the Messiah. And then they watched as he died on the cross. Afterward, they fell into an immediate state of depression grieving and mourning the death of the man they had followed for three years. Clearly, they viewed his death as permanent. Then something strange happened. 
In a matter of days, the apostles transformed from devastated and broken to joyful and confident. They started preaching to everyone who would listen that Jesus was and is the Messiah. That he had risen from the dead. Now, is that because in those few days, they put their heads together and hatched an elaborate conspiracy to lie? Is it because they needed a few days to concoct their stories and get them straight? Believe that, that, that if you wish. I want you to believe that if you want to believe it. But it doesn't make sense. After all, if they were lying, then every single one of them knew it was all a lie. And what did they get in return for, for those lies? Condemnation, torture, persecution, and eventual a violent death. Okay. So where's the incentive to lie? What's the motive? If it was all a lie, wouldn't it seem like that at least one of the apostles would, wouldn't have recanted? Huh? I think that's highly likely. After all, what, what are the odds of getting a group of 11 people to agree to tell the same lie in exchange for persecution and death? It's not very good. The odds are not very good. And that's why the apostles reacted to the crucifixion of Jesus uh, the way that they did, you know. Now, the, one of the strongest pieces of evidence for, for believing that Jesus was and is who he said he was, was they saw him crucified. Okay. They saw Jesus crucified. They mourned about it so they knew he was dead. But the apostles weren't the only ones who saw this. Many others made the bold claim that Jesus rose from the dead too. And not one of them had any motive or incentive for doing so outside of simply telling the truth. Now, Jesus also appeared to two followers who were en route to Amimaeus. Okay. This is a small village, seven miles outside of Jerusalem. I want you to read Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 34. And Jesus also appeared to a gathering of more than 500 followers at one time. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6. These witnesses faced the same level of persecution and condemnation as the apostles, yet they were just as fanatical in their instances that Jesus was the Messiah. Okay. Even though they, they also saw him die on the cross. Why? Only the resurrection can explain it. One believer, a man named, named Stephen, certainly knew that Jesus had died on the cross. When he was brought before the Jewish council on false charges of blasphemy, he accused them of betraying and murdering the Messiah. Read Acts chapter 7 verse 52. He then testified he saw the resurrected Jesus standing in heaven at the right hand of God. Read Acts chapter 7 verses 55 and 56. Why would he do this unless it was true? It certainly didn't get him fame, fortune, power, or, or worldly gain of, of, of any sort. Instead, a crowd dragged Stephen out of the city and stoned him to death. 
Yet, as he died, Stephen asked Jesus to receive his spirit and forgive those who were stoning him because they knew not what they were doing. Read Acts chapter 7, verse 58 through verse 60. Now, do those sound like the dying words of a man devoted to anything less than telling the truth? Yet, believe it or not, there's another witness I found far more convincing than Stephen and all of the apostles put together. In fact, as Stephen was stoned, the same people who threw the stones took off their coats and laid them at the feet of this man, a devout Jew, a Pharisee. He set out to extinguish the gospel of Jesus Christ from the face of this earth. And you know what? In doing so, he became the one witness who solidified my belief more than any other. Who was this super witness for Jesus Christ? His name was Saul. And he was a man like no other first century Israel. Okay. A Jew from the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee, highly educated. He was a Roman citizen, meaning he had beneficial um, legal status in regard to laws, property, and, and, and governance within the empire. Read Acts chapter 22, verses 24 through 29. He spoke Greek and Hebrew, and he was well-versed in classical literature and Stoic philosophy. He studied under Gamaliel, okay, one of the most noted rabbis in the history of Judaism. He had status, knowledge, access, wealth, connections, and worldly approval. But in spite of all of this, what was Saul's most noted for? What was he most noted for? He was most famous for his violent persecution of the early church. Saul hated Christians. He hated them with a passion unmatched by his peers. In fact, he built quite a reputation among the followers of Jesus as one of the foremost enemies of the faith. Now, if there was any man in ancient Israel who lacked motive and incentive for proclaiming the gospel, it was Saul. After all, why would a man who hated Christians with such zealous fervor chose to become one of them? What would he have to gain if the early Christians had incentive to lie about the resurrection and they didn't? What would be Saul's reason? He already had respect, position, high standing and and worldly acceptance. Why would he turn on every principle he held so dear? Embrace the faith he is so vehemently sought to extinguish and in the process give up an, an accumul accumulated lifetime of status, wealth, and worldly possessions. Yet in the blink of an eye, that's exactly what he did. Saul transformed from the most murderous Christian assassin of his time into the greatest evangelist for, the, for Jesus Christ the world has ever seen. The question I asked myself, and you should ask yourself, is why? Why did Paul do this? Why did he transform? Why did he change his ways? 
After the stoning of Stephen, the book of Acts tells us that Saul went from house to house in Jerusalem, throwing Christian believers into prison, into prison. I'm sorry. Then he went to house uh, to the high priest and requested to have letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus so he could arrest the Christians he found there and bring them back to Jerusalem in chains. Read Acts chapter nine, verse one through two. With every breath, Saul threatened to kill the Christians. He hated them and his goal was nothing less than to exterminate them. But in an instant, all that changed. Something radically changed Saul's life and the entire Christian movement, literally overnight. Saul not only stopped persecuting Christians, he became one. And he didn't just become a run-of-the-mill, ho-hum believer. He transformed into one of the most passionate advocates for Jesus Christ who ever walked the face of this earth. And all this happened in a matter of hours. What could possibly have occurred to account uh, a radical transformation for Paul? Hmm? I believe there's one answer and one answer only. Saul saw the resurrected Jesus. Fortunately, we don't have to speculate because the Bible tells us exactly what happened. How did Paul transform? Now, according to the book of Acts, while en route to Damascus to round up the Christians, a bright light enveloped Saul and a voice from heaven, heaven, not from Junebug and them who was walking with him or Kevin and them that was walking with him. A voice from heaven said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? When Saul inquired as to who he was per persecuting, the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. I want you to read Acts chapter nine, verse three through nine. While this story is quickly discounted by many people who, who don't believe in God or, or supernatural events, you shouldn't even be paying them any attention, any, any attention anyway. It seems to me to be the most logical explanation for Saul's conversion. After all, what else could explain his dramatic transformation other than the truth of what the Bible claims? How many people do you know who have made such wholesale changes to their deeply held religious beliefs in a mere matter of hours. Not many, I would wager. In fact, you probably don't know anyone who fits this description. Now, I know I don't, but again, that's exactly what happened to Saul. Don't you find that strange? I do. From then on, Saul, now known as Paul, the Apostle Paul, spent his life passionately preaching in favor of the very thing he had marshaled all his strength and energy to destroy, saying such things as Jesus Christ rose from the dead. First Corinthians 15 verse three through four. And in Jesus is all the complete fullness of God in human form. This is Paul teaching now, the one who used to persecute the church. Read Colossians chapter two, verse nine. Paul didn't just make a few offhand remarks. He truly performed a complete and total 180 degree turn. He gave up everything from his previous life in order to tell others about Jesus. 
spending the remainder of his life eating, sleeping, and breathing the gospel of Christ. He preached in an untold number of cities, covering the entire Mediterranean from Jerusalem to Rome. He wrote 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament, and he consistently put his life on the line to spread the good news, the gospel. Why would he do any of this unless the Bible's account of his conversion experience is the absolute truth? Don't think this is such a big deal. Hmm? Do you? Do you think that you don't think this is such a big deal? Think of it this. Think of this. This was easy for Paul. Or, or are you thinking of it that way? Do you think this was easy for Paul? Think again. What Paul sacrificed to preach the gospel of Christ speaks volumes. Like the apostles, Paul didn't acquire fame, wealth, or power as a result of his evangelism. Instead, he gave up all his worldly privilege, his property, his status, his social standing, and more. And what did he get in, in return? Relentless persecution. Paul faced more than his share of adversity, beating, shipwrecks, hunger, imprisonment, stoning, angry mobs, exhaustion, sleepless nights, flogging, and, and other hardships that I, I'm not mentioning. On one occasion, after Paul had preached the good news to the people of, of Lystria, some Jews from Antioch and Iconium dragged him out of the city stoned him and left him for dead. But do you know what Paul did? He stood up and went right back into the city to preach the gospel. Read Acts chapter 14 verses 19 and 20. Is that what you would do? Huh? Is that what you would do? Why would he do this? What did he have to gain? That's what you need to focus on. What did the apostles have to gain? What did Paul have to gain? Ultimately, he was beheaded for his persistent preaching of the gospel. And he didn't have to be beheaded. Paul, let me tell you something. God told the apostles and I'm talking the risen Jesus told the apostles, including Paul, certain places not to go and preach the gospel because he knew what would happen. But Paul chose to go anyway and ended up being beheaded. OK, so God had shown Paul the way out. He chose to go preach the gospel anyway. So you tell me, what would make Paul do that? Oh, he saw the risen Christ. Oh, yes, he did. Yes, he did. Blessed is the man who believes and haven't seen. That's us. We haven't seen the risen Christ physically, but I definitely feel him. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Now, Paul's conversion had, had an enormous impact on my personal beliefs about Jesus. Uh-huh. Reading Paul's testimony surely convinced me that the apostles were telling the truth. If what he saw on the road to Damascus was a lie, what was the motive? What was his motive? Why would he lie about such a thing and then back up his lie with an uh, unrelenting commitment to evangelism? Why would he preach and preach and preach? in exchange for beatings and stonings and imprisonment, hunger, and eventual execution. He'd have to be crazy. All of them would have to be crazy. 
And in reading his letters to the early churches, Paul appeared to be anything but crazy. In fact, he was a man of sound mind and great eloquence. And as far as I can tell, neither one is a trademark characteristic of the insane. <laughs> so what does all this mean? It means if you're truly objective, you need to admit that the early followers of Jesus offer powerful and credible testimony in support of his resurrection. Yes, throughout history, many people have given their lives for false messiahs. But Jesus' followers were different. They abandoned him in his hour of need. They saw him die. They mourned. And then they gave their lives. They weren't deluded by a, a, a charismatic leader. And they weren't part of a vast conspiracy. Those scenarios just don't make sense. Only one does. They saw the real God of the universe. These eyewitnesses faced persecution, torture, and death for their continued insistence that Jesus was who he said he was. He's the man. Now, in return, they received neither fame, fortune, nor worldly power or others. So why did they do it? I'm asking you that. Why did they do it? Furthermore, if Jesus and his followers were deluded, shouldn't they, you know, shouldn't there be evidence of it? Instead, everywhere I look, I see just the opposite. Fulfilled Old Testament prophecies indicate Jesus was the Messiah. His miracles testify that he was the Messiah and countless men, even once mortal enemies, gave up everything to profess that Jesus was the Messiah. And they did this even though the results was nothing but persecution and then eventually death, death by execution. Now, examining the testimony of these eyewitnesses satisfied many of my original questions. Is there a God? Yes, there is. There definitely is a God. And if so, who is he? He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he answers to the name of Jesus. These facts I now knew for certain, but alone they didn't provide answers to all of my questions. Yes, Jesus is Lord, but does he care about you and me? That was a question I definitely wanted to answer. Fortunately, I found that answer. And it was beyond anything I ever considered possible. Yes, Jesus loves us. Yes, God loves us because he proved his love for us by yet while we were still sinners. Christ died for the ungodly. He died on that cross, went into hell, the core of the earth, three days and three nights to take the punishment that you and I deserve for our sins, our sins against God. We were spiritually dead. Now, because Christ did what he did and we believe that, we are now made spiritually alive. We are now connected to God. We don't need no middleman. Jesus did it for us so that we can have uh, open contact with our true and living God. We don't have to talk to a rock. 
we don't have to talk to a tree. We don't have to talk to a golden statue. We can talk to the creator of this earth. Now, saints, I hope you were blessed by this message. I was. I, I hope I slowed down enough for some of you so that you don't have to constantly, constantly play the tape over and over. It was a struggle for me, but I'm going to try to practice talking slower so that some of you can can understand but like i said before i am used to uh speaking at engagements i speak at work a lot i teach i do a lot of teaching and i naturally talk fast so i hope that i adjusted my speed my speech speed just enough so that you don't have to keep playing the table over and over so i want you to stand by for my closing remarks and uh, first, before that, an invitation to accept Christ. Then my closing remarks, okay? I hope this truth blessed you. To everyone who hears this message, including those who profess to having accepted Christ, but don't possess his spirit, and to the non-believers who are chasing religion looking for God, Tomorrow is not promised to you. Now is the acceptable time. Today is the day of salvation. There is no other way to get to God outside of Christ. There is no back door. I want you to read John chapter 14 verses 1 through 6. All you have to do to secure your salvation in Christ is to say this simple prayer one time and mean it. Father God. I am a sinner in need of salvation. I confess that Jesus is Lord, and I believe in my heart that you raised him from the dead. And because I confessed and believe this in my heart, God, your word says I'm saved. Amen. If you said this simple prayer, my friends, you have just been saved by grace. Yes, it's just that simple. If you were sincere, you should feel a change in your heart right now. You now have free access to God. You are a saint, a believer, and most importantly, a child of the Most High God. I encourage you to join a faith-based teaching church. Continue to listen to Learning Bible Truth so you can grow in faith and learn how to walk in God's amazing grace. Renew your mind with the word of God so you can establish a relationship with him. God wants you to enjoy life, laugh, love, forgive, and treat everyone you encounter with compassion, dignity, and respect. Now stand by for my closing remarks. Pray that you were blessed by this message. If you have any questions or comments about this message, please send your comments or questions to talkingbibletruth.cd at gmail.com. And if you would like to support this podcast financially because you feel we have been a blessing to you, go to one of my five podcasts, Anchor, Spotify, Breaker, Google Podcasts, or Radio Public, and contribute an amount of your choice. Now, until next time. Remember that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. 
We walk by faith, not by sight. I am your host, Dr. Kamala D, rightly dividing the word of truth in peace and love. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope to see you next time.